This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and I've really been looking forward to this interview with Ruha Benjamin, who's a professor at Princeton, where Matthew Desmond is, and where Imani Perry was before she went to Harvard. So, you know, you, you have some really great staff there. She's also the author of a new book called Imagination, a Manifesto. And I love this book. I'm so excited for this book to hit the world. And it's a lot of different things, but mostly it's a call for us to sort of think about how we interact with technology and where we're going to let technology take us and maybe some changes we want to think about making. And we don't have to be more than ourselves to do this, right? Like we don't all have to be professors. We just have to show up for ourselves and our communities. And I love this idea. Ruha, thank you so much for joining us on the show. How are you? I'm great. It's such a pleasure to be here and be in conversation. Thank you so much for engaging imagination. You have an opening line in this book. I, I may end up quoting you a lot in the course of this conversation. I'm just warning you now. But you say very plainly at the beginning of the book, you want imagination to be something that runs wild, that you use this word in an undisciplined way, a promiscuous way, in a porous way. And I kind of want to start there because there are a lot of folks, I think, who think, oh, right, imagination, we should be talking about fake stories or picture books or movies or video games or things like that. And imagination is actually all of those things and more. Exactly. It's funny, you can talk about something like imagination and yet still have little imagination about imagination. <laughs> it's like a very narrow set of things that we either associate with the art or with mm -hmm. flights of fancy. And so part of it is to really be able to see imagination in things that we don't associate with it, in mundane realities. And also, I think part of that opening comes from the fact that in my own home discipline of sociology, we have this key concept of the sociological imagination. So as much as that inspires the work, I'm also trying not to limit myself to that disciplinary definition of what counts as the sociological imagination. And also, one of the things I love about your newest book is that as you're going through, you like to remind us, too, that, you know, science and technology, the way many practitioners approach their respective disciplines, as it were, is with wild imagination. Yes, exactly. I mean, how else do we get on the moon or, you know, this, I'm just using, you know, the space yeah. shuttle or vaccines or any of the things that we can do? Like now you can get a hip replacement or a knee replacement and it's practically outpatient. And people are very open about it. Like when I was a grad student um, studying the social dimensions of stem cell research, researchers would routinely talk about how childhood or teenage experiences with sci-fi influenced their future research. They would reference Star Trek. They would reference these really far out scenarios. And so if they're aware of it, I think we should be aware of it too, that the dichotomy between let's say, the arts and the sciences is much more porous than we often imagine. And I think there's still some folks who really are binary in their thinking. Like the arts have to live here and science and tech has to live here. And I'm like, but science and tech is created by people. Art is created by people. Like we are the thing that's the consistent between what we're treating as like wildly separate disciplines. And, you know, have I watched more than one episode of Black Mirror doing this? Yes. With my hands <laughs> over my eyes, of course I have. But again, like that's exactly the kind of art that's in conversation 
with what tech can do. I have to say, I didn't realize I had been misusing the word Luddite for a really long time. I would say, well, I'm not a Luddite. And it was your book, Race After Technology, where I was like, oh, wait, I've been misusing this because the Luddites are actually just really concerned about the social implications of rapidly advancing technology. And I know I am not the only person who has been misusing that phrase for a really long time. I'm like this pejorative or this disclaimer. Right? I have this critique, but I'm not a Luddite. But the Luddites weren't the Luddite that we assumed no. them to be. They were raising questions about how work was being, they were being displaced by these new machines. Right. And so it was smashing the machine was about bringing attention to the human aspect of work. There's so many things that I appreciate about being able to live sort of halfway online, right? Like checking in early for flights. That's a delight. Or having my boarding pass on my phone. There are some things that are a million times better or, you know, just little conveniences. Conveniences. Yes. And and I do appreciate it. But I also think about it when I'm going through toll roads on the highway and there isn't a toll taker that, you know, there's just a photo of my license plate. And that used to be someone's job. And they used to raise a family on that salary and have vacations and health insurance and own their home and their car and everything else. And now it's just a robot. Yes, yes. And that again, that convenience, the allure of making things easier for some hides the cost of that. So I often use the example of like the fact that I can jump on my phone while we're talking or the conversation's done. I can have like a steaming hot bowl of ramen waiting outside my office. Convenient for me, but what does it take, not just technically, but in terms of the human cost of getting that done so fast? And how is that the the quality of that person's work? How much are they being paid? How much are they being pressured to get it there on time? And so part of it is to open up the frame so we can see everything and not just focus on our own well-being and our own convenience. Well, and not just well-being and convenience too, but you know, what's the cost, right? What's the ultimate cost? And I'm not necessarily limiting that to the financial cost. There is a human cost. There's a social cost. There is, even to an extent, an emotional cost. Yes. And that expansiveness, you know, for all of our interconnectedness, right? Like, you know, okay, I'm a knitter. It's much easier to be a knitter now you know, with technology and, you know, digital patterns and all of these kinds of things or being able to source things around the world. It's great. But at the same time, it changes how we interact Mm. with each other. It changes how we interact with information. Mm. It changes how we interact with our communities. It changes how we define our communities. Yeah. Like where would you get that information or those patterns or that uh, expertise in terms of the social connections that can get frayed or are lost in the process that now you can just go to YouTube, <laughs> you know? So thinking about that. Yeah. And you also say, you know, imagination isn't a luxury. That's right. And so like we think about schooling and the kids that whose imaginations are nurtured, yeah. who are thought to think creatively, who get to infuse all of these, you know, different modes of learning into project-based X, Y, and Z, and who has to follow the rules? Who has to raise their hand? Who can't move without anyone, you know, getting in trouble? And so part of it is to look at, again, this par- these parallel realities that start so early in terms of, it's not that we don't have imagination, we're hoarding imagination for some, 
And some entire groups of young people don't get to cultivate their imagination, at least in traditional sort of institutions. And part of your field of study, because it's centered on data analysis, essentially, is really young. Of course, you're pulling from history and sociology and anthropology and all of these different points, but the data piece, right? The data science piece, mm-hmm. <laughs> we're all approaching it. And even, you know, it's not just Princeton, it's, it's major universities everywhere, but the idea that we have billionaires because we approach data differently. And we're in the early days, like you said, right? we're in the early days. So oftentimes when I'll speak in different organizations or companies, they're like, okay, what are the best practices? Who's doing it right? Show us where to look. And I was like, <laughs> no one really. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, Everyone's really in the early days of realizing that data is not neutral, that technology right. is not object. Like we're just in the awakening moment. So people haven't actually honed different modes of approaching these fields um, in a way that I could be confident to say, follow this example. <laughs> right. It is like for all of the discomfort that some of this brings, right? Like we're all in a very strange moment culturally. You're ultimately very hopeful about what we can do. And I think that's really important right now because it really, the world is not in a great place as you and I are taping this interview. The world is simply not in a great place. But the idea that we are capable of finding avenues of change, I think that's a really important message for all of us to hear right now. And you, there's a moment in the book where you sort of have this, let's not say step-by-step plan, but you make some suggestions for exercises. And I'm hoping that when people pick up the book, they'll spend some time there. Yes. And so I think, I think you're right. It's a hopefulness, but it's a very stubborn hopefulness. It's (laughs) against all the odds. Right. It's also this idea in the same way that imagination isn't a luxury. Hopefulness isn't a luxury. Like if, if the world as it's currently configured creates for you and those you love premature death, closes right. opportunities, creates these parallel universes in which you can't thrive, then you either submit to that and throw your hands up or you have the, the mindset of like, by all means necessary. We will change this. And so it's a kind of militant, stubborn hopefulness that if the status quo is creating a unlivable, uninhabitable right. world, which it really is for all of us, if yeah. you think about it, then, you know, like Baldwin would say, I can't be a pessimist. You know, to be a pessimist means you've decided that human life is an academic matter. And although I'm an academic, I won't sort of submit to that. And so I think part of it is it's a matter of kind of life and death survival for many people. So I, who am I to say, oh, we can't be hopeful because everything is going wrong. Well, and you've also in other interviews and in your own biography have mentioned that your family was sort of your first classroom. And can we bring your parents into this for a second? Because I love your background and I love this story. And I just, I also really love the idea of little Ruha being like, well, my family is a Petri dish. I'm yes. going to be like, this is where it all starts. Because yes. you clearly have been thinking about the, all of this for a really long time. And your body of work represents sort of this continuum. And also your dad turned you on to one of the Star Trek spinoffs. <laughs> I'm fascinated by all of this. Yes. You know, a part of it is to realize, like when we talk about innovation, innovation yeah. isn't just like what 
billionaires are doing or what tech is doing. It's like thinking about innovation, how people innovate in their lives. They do new things that haven't been done before. And so part of it is to, to expand who counts as an innovator, who, what do we consider to be innovation? And so mm-hmm. me thinking about that leads me to my parents who, you know, they met in Southern India at a Baha'i conference. And my father is African-American, my mom's Iranian descent, but born and raised in India. The day after they met, they decided to get married. Wow. Okay. <laughs> my mom gave a talk at this conference and I guess they, you know, they connected after that and talked for the whole day. And it took them about two and a half weeks to connect with all the parents and family. And so just that knowing the stigmas, knowing the barriers for kind of cross-cultural connection, much less marriage, is like already an innovation <laughs> in yeah. some ways because we don't yeah. see that all the time. And then it's not just limited to them. It's the, the embrace of both sides of the family. So lots of people do it. But then there's all kinds of hostility and exclusion and cutting people off. And there was none of that. Like both sides of the family were really supportive. And so that was my starting point to think, oh, you can live your life differently. You can make different choices. We do inherit these patterns uh, social behavior, ways of thinking and seeing each other that seem to overdetermine our choices and narrow often our choices in life. But you don't have to, like you can choose differently. And so that was, again, not something I was thinking about when I was at Little Ruha, but looking right. back, certainly realizing like, oh, the people around me who don't necessarily have fancy degrees, who aren't working in labs, who aren't considered innovators, they're actually my first teachers when it comes to questioning what we consider natural, what we consider good, and and really making different choices in life. And so that was a, a starting point for me. And tech is a form of storytelling, right? Like if we think about a lot of the current sort of American mythology, right? Garage startups and Yes. Da, da 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 this and this by the skin of our teeth and holding Blown on by the, genius all of it all <laughs> of it it's just it's not that far removed from sort of you know the mythology that we were taught as tiny people right about whether it's the opening of the American West or it's you yeah. know Greek and Roman gods standing on hills and smiting people whatever it's fascinating to me how much the threads of the story kind of stay the same yes right? absolutely like it the kinds of you know, tech developments that we take for granted that we're carrying around in our, you know, you know, uh, pockets and, and that make life easier and convenient. Mm-hmm. required massive mythologies and stories right. to conjure to get us to think that this is a necessity. And so part of it is to question those, but also think about what stories aren't we telling? What other ways of, of thinking about this have we left out or scrapped or considered backwards? And so one of the threads throughout imagination is, you know, looking for the stories that have been buried. Yes. <laughs> and so a colleague of mine has written a book about low tech, local traditional ecological knowledge, all of these communities around the world who have been engaging in practices around the environment that are sustainable, that we need mm-hmm. to learn from if we're going to move forward, right? But oftentimes these communities are considered primitive. And yet it's exactly these knowledges that we need to embrace and learn from rather than listening to the the single stories coming out of Silicon Valley. 
Right. Did writing imagination change you or does it sit on a continuum? Because I do actually feel like, and I say this having read Viral Justice and, and Race After Technology, but it feels like your thinking has gotten a little tighter on the subject. Like I see the origins of this book in yes. the earlier work. Yeah. Now you're getting really sort of, it's fun to see. It's Thank really fun you. to see your development as a writer. And I'm just wondering sort of where you Absolutely. are now. You know, I think it was after Race After Technology came out when I had to start going on the road and talking about it. And so I had to kind of distill certain things that aren't actually fleshed out in Race After Technology. But in speaking about it, I needed to synthesize. And in doing so, the imagination as a battleground concept is where I really started to kind of talk about it a lot, but I hadn't written it. I was just like, it was more of this kind of like more of my teacher mode. Like, what do we learn from race after technology that wasn't actually in the book? And so you're right to see that kind of synthesis happen. And I think what also was part of what you're picking up on is that imagination is really, in terms of audience, much more explicit, like look, thinking about education, thinking about K through 12 education, thinking about students and how their imaginations are stifled. So part of it is that the the audience in my mind as I was writing was more focused. And so it allowed me to kind of be more pointed in what do I want you to get out of this? And so it was a challenge, certainly the whole idea that I have to get it under 200 words. So I did have to cut out big chunks. <laughs> that was painful at first, <laughs> but it, it is what it is. Well, I'm sorry for you as the writer, but as the reader, I have to say, I'm really happy with the okay. experience that I okay. had. So if that helps at all, because I've read it now a couple of times and the first time I read it cold. Yeah. And then the second time, obviously you you're reading shifts, right? When you're preparing for something like this and the, the details change a little bit and whatnot. But all I could really think of was how many people I know who need this book that will be getting it from me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> because I just, it's so accessible and it's really earnest and it is hopeful. And yes, it's a little pointed because sometimes we need to hear things that maybe we don't think we need to hear. And yes, actually we need to hear them. But you are so engaged with possibility. Mm -hmm. And that to me is a wildly optimistic mm -hmm. view of the world. Like, yeah, things are broken in a lot of ways and it is a rough moment to be human but let's not throw up our hands no I mean and I think if I wasn't a teacher if I wasn't a mom you know I think part of it is like if it, if I was just thinking about my own little life I think I might get more mired down in cynicism and kind of impossibility but precisely because I'm in relation <laughs> to the next generation that's looking to me for like, okay, I can help you diagnose what's ailing us, but I can't leave it at that. Like I learned that early on as a teacher, like in setting up my classes, like I can't talk to you about, you know, police violence or housing injustice or healthcare disparities without also showing you some ways forward, the way that organizations, groups, and movements are are working to counteract that and think of other possibilities. And so one of the first classes I taught early on was race is socially constructed, colon, now what? <laughs> Questions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so right. this idea like, we get it, we get it. <laughs> this is the problem. 
Now what? <laughs> what right. do we do about it? And it's that mode. Like I'm always asking myself that. Mm-hmm. Now what? <laughs> but I love that now what? Because one of the things you talk about early in this new book, Imagination and Manifesto, too, is this idea of false binaries, right? Like, and I mentioned this before, where it's sort of like art sits on one side and text sits on the other. And a lot of our storytelling and a lot of the things we have taught ourselves over time has sort of settled us into these these false binaries. And one of the things you're pushing us to do with this book is saying, well, it's not just old story versus new story. It's like, what if they're new-ish? Yes. And I love this, new-ish. What if they're new-ish stories? And what if we're between stories? And again, that like brings us back to possibility. But can you just elaborate a little bit on that for people? Because I think it's, it's just, it's a really good concept and I Absolutely. don't want to misexplain it. <laughs> I mean, part of it is that the the big bad boogeymen are easy to see and point out and you can kind of create a straw man of like, these are the bad guys. We need to be able to recognize that. But I think what's even more important and harder to hone as a capacity is to see when harmful things are packaged <laughs> in kind of a do-gooding ethos, in the veneer of shiny tech progress. And so it's that like third category of things being newish, where it feels on the surface like there's something new going on here. The fact that, like you said, you can do, you know, quickly plug in and get things done. But what is that? What are the harms that aren't exactly new that that's reproducing? And so if we just take you know, what's been in the news this past year in terms of advances in generative AI and chat GPT and all the rest. Part of it is that what we're being sold as new and high advanced artificial intelligence relies on masses of human labor that's denigrated and that's really diminished, which is not a new phenomenon. <laughs> it's this oftentimes the same categories of people, this work and labor being outsourced to places like the Philippines or Kenya. Mm-hmm. And so that element of it is the ish part. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, <laughs> the the exploitation that gives us this shiny new convenience um, is repackaging old exploitative models of labor that we need to pay attention to and push back against. And also deep learning, right? Deep learning is the is the mathematical and scientific theory <laughs> that sort of drives all of AI. Deep learning is still based in human beings. Yeah. And until we sort of fix the larger stuff, we are in fact setting ourselves up to continue to repeat things where it's like, wait, haven't we learned yet? Exactly. Haven't we figured out that this in fact is not, ju- this is really not a great idea. Exactly. And yet, we're just like a hamster on a wheel and we're constantly doing something. It's like, and doesn't so the hamster want to get off? Exactly. We want to get off. And so like I often say with deep learning, what we're being told is it's like this computation, advanced computational capacity. But that computational depth in deep learning without social and historical depth, in my view, superficial learning, like it's just the surface. And so what we have to do is think about what other knowledges, what other forms of intelligence are getting scripted out, are getting written out. Intelligence is all this being modeled on. And so it's those kinds of questions that I think are a good starting point to push back against the newer stories. But then, and again, this is my like teacher mode, it's like, 
what's new, what really new stories do we want to create? What, what do we actually want to flourish? And so not just ending with critique, but being creative in the process. I'm going to go back to Star Trek for a second. Um, I'm not a Star Trek person, but like in sort of the cultural pantheon, like I have a working understanding, right? But <laughs> the idea though, that like this represented the future and all of its different, I mean, there've been multiple incarnations and I forget the one that your dad had the videotapes of, but I just, you end up living in the South Pacific and really all you have is books and your dad's videotapes because your parents were educators and you obviously went where they went. But there's so many people I know, a lot of whom are book people um, and film people now, but who grew up sort of on this idea that there was this future, this ultimate future, right? There was genuine diversity and everyone kind of got along and, you know, you made cool stuff and, you know, you could do whatever you wanted on a hologram deck and blah, blah, blah. You know, I sort of think about where we are, and it's a little more Black Mirror than it is Star Trek. Totally. Totally. And maybe there isn't a real answer to this, but, like, how do we put the brakes on it, right? Like, we have entire generations now of young people who've grown up digitally. Like, I'm on the cusp of, like, my brother and I used to fight over the phone. Like, we had a phone in the kitchen on the wall, and, like, we would fight over who got to use the phone. I think I fought with my brother over the phone. Okay, so you know what I'm talking about. And, like, you know, we would use the pantry as a phone booth (laughs) because we were not allowed to have phones in our rooms. We didn't have televisions in our room. Like, it was just a sort of different way of living. And now we've got this generation of younger people. And in some ways, it has benefited them. I mean, you can find community in a different way. You can really be less isolated in some ways. And in other ways, it's kind of like, well, hold on, that doesn't seem to be working for you. Yes. And it's the hold on, that doesn't seem to be working for you that I'm more concerned about as just a member of our society and our culture where I'm just like, are you guys okay? Yes, I know. So, I mean, it's funny that you mentioned Black Mirror because I I teach a class on Black Mirror partly because there's so many lessons. It's literally reflecting back at us things that we necessarily can't see about our relationship with technology. And so I think part of it is to figure out which tools and technologies are not fostering the kind of sociality and connections that we value and getting rid of those. (laughs) The other is to not, again, not be against technology, but to encode a different imagination. Like what kind of imagination do we want to actually get encoded into the design of these new tools? But unless we're carving out space for the next generation of technologists and humanists to think through that, then we're always going to be stuck with what we have now, right? And so part of it is the implications for education and for training and for the very early tracking of students into that binary of like, so Mm -hmm. many people are like, I'm not a techie person. I'm not a sciencey person getting pushed out of those fields so they can't ever be part of the conversation to be able to think through those new stories. I think the implications are much younger than we often in terms of how we should be thinking about this. And again, we're talking about changing the narrative. We're talking about changing the story, which, you know, when I say it like that, it sounds a little flip and it sounds, and I don't actually intend it that way, but sometimes when you have to make a monumental shift, you do have to break it down into a tiny little piece. Yes. Yes. And of course, you know, that tiny little piece has many, many pieces attached to it. I'm I'm not saying this is something we can do overnight, but I am hoping that we can change our approach mm-hmm. as human beings and just say, hey, wait a minute, why have we been telling ourselves this version of the story that, you know, 
I've succeeded solely by my own will. I have succeeded solely because I set my mind to it or I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I'm just picking on easy examples, right? Like these are, these are such common narratives when in fact systems get in the way. Yes. Right. The machinery gets in the way of the humanity. And I think going to that point, I think, you know, the stories that are harmful, again, are easy to pick out, you know, in terms of the hyper competitiveness, the divisiveness, all of that. But part of it is to think about even the stories that purport to be moving us in a better direction. Oftentimes they are limited in really important ways that we need to question those quote unquote progressive stories. So let's just take you know, this idea of allyship and, um, you know, helping the underserved and, you know, doing things that we would code as good. But even those are limited because they fail to recognize that my well-being and fate is bound up with yours. So when you are doing something to make the world more loving or more just, it's not charity work. You're not doing it for me. <laughs> You're doing it's it's selfish. It's something that boomerangs back to you. And I think like shifting even this the ideas around why we do what we do, mm-hmm. that it's not this philanthropic charity model of change, but it's thinking about our interconnectedness, <laughs> right? And so that if you do X, Y, and Z, that is actually creating a more livable world for you too, not just for me. I spend a lot of time in both New York and Los Angeles. And, you know, when you're in New York, you're kind of in the mass of humanity, right? We're all taking the subway. We're all walking on the sidewalk. And LA, there's starting to be more of the walking around on the sidewalks kind of thing. People still don't use the subway. I'm just like, really? It's, it's very useful. We spend a lot of time in our cars, obviously, in Los Angeles. And so you're sort of the opportunity to sort of randomly connect with just random human beings in your orbit, right? Like it's just much more likely to happen in a city like New York versus a city like Los Angeles. And you can kind of feel the difference, right? You you grew up in LA, so I know you know what I'm talking about. Like even, even when you grow up in a community like the one you grew up in where your grandmother is right there saying, oh no, you. It's kind of wild to me how much in this interconnected age, right? That we're all still kind of doing it. I'm going to stand over here. I'm on my side of the line. I'm on my side of the hedge. I'm on my side of the, you know, the street. The idea that the, our environments, we're shaped by our environments and we shape it. And so, you know, if the opportunity to connect with our neighbors because of the way that the infrastructure is, the way that neighborhoods are deeply segregated mm-hmm. you know, um, today in, in numerous ways, all of those factors into what's possible for us personally, right. to be able to experience these connections. And so I think, you know, it moves beyond this idea of kind of like individual will to do something that we actually have to create the conditions for those types of connections. So what do those conditions look like beyond walking down the street or taking the subway together? I mean, how do we foster a a wider sense of community. Yeah. So I just got back from LA last night. The way that I saw it happening. So there was a group, uh, intergenerational group that at the beginning of COVID, when all the gyms closed and all of the indoor 
they just started walking outside and walking in this neighborhood um, where I've grown up, starting at one park, walking through Kenneth Hahn, going to the Culver City stairs and back. Every single day of the week, they walk and different people come, bring guests, et cetera, et cetera. And so this is just one simple example of people who would normally be cooped up in their own little, you know, neighborhood or, or house saying, you know what, we're going to carve out time in our, our routine, our everyday life. And in the course of that, you meet new people, you make new connections. What I learned when I, I joined the group this January is that it's not simply about the walking, the exercise that time, it's actually growing a village. So now, for example, there was a woman that was part of the is part of the group in her 60s that she was disconnected from her own family. And so they didn't recognize the early signs of dementia, but members of the group did because they saw her on such a regular basis, they started noticing little changes. So not only were they able to recognize it, but now they've created a support system where they pick her up, they help her do all these things. And so that's one simple example where just change, like creating the conditions of interacting and meeting people has this kind of ripple effect beyond the explicit goal that where, why it started to actually creating these, these bonds of connection that and end up having life and death consequences like for this individual. And so just one example of many in a place that we, LA, you don't think about something like a village (laughs) uh, taking shape and it does. But also when people talk about, you know, sort of the old days with a nostalgic tone, as it were, I mean, part of what they're talking about is not just the familiar, whatever shape that takes, but also that sense of community. I mean, in the past, people didn't always move very far from their families kind of thing. But the idea that we could create that now and whatever that looks like, right? Like found family is amazing. Exactly. And we can do that. We can, and we are. And part of it is like shining a light on it so people can realize it doesn't take, you know, multiple degrees or, you know, a lot of planning. It's like stepping outside of our our comfort zone and, you know, connecting with people who, you know, need it. And I think part of what we're seeing too is, you know, some people call it an epidemic of loneliness, but people are feeling really disconnected, really wildly disconnected. It is not healthy for us. We are social creatures, even when, you know, some of us also need to stare at a wall every now and again, but we are, yeah, right. (laughs) Human beings that we are, like, we do need to be around other people. And I'm hoping that folks who read Imagination and Manifesto do understand that we're talking about tiny changes. I mean, I love the story of the walking group that you just told. I love the idea that you know, you can figure out that someone needs a hand and just be there to give it to them. And not in an intrusive way either. It's not like you're swooping in and saying, I will fix all of the things. It's just, oh, I can do this. Yes. Yes. That's so important. Yeah. It's really so important. I mean, or just showing up for someone where, you know, you just show up you just say, I'm here. I, I, I mean, you know, I don't know what that means in the grand scheme of things, but Sometimes you just need to know that there's another person acknowledging you in the world. And that we are willing to accept that help and support. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things we're fighting up against is the story of the rugged individual that I can do everything. And that 
needing help is a sign of weakness, as right? a sign of character failure. And so again, thinking about what is the story that we've inherited that's actually making us miserable? <laughs> and so and saying, actually, no, you know, like we all are vulnerable. We all need help. And accepting it, it doesn't mean you're like a less, you know, a lesser human being. It's it's our it's our actual you know, status as, you know, we need each other. And so once we just get over and push back against those stories, we can create new ones where those assumptions about individualism and independence, as opposed to interdependence, aren't ruling us and making us miserable. Well, and there's another piece of that too, where, you know, romantic love isn't all of the story and that there are many varieties of love and love is hard sometimes. Sometimes showing up for other people is not the easiest thing to do. And I think that's another story we've told ourselves where it's just like romantic love is this thing. We all aspire to it. But, 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 you know, and actually, you know, it's great. um, Wonderful mentees, Priya and Winona, they call each other their platonic life partners. (laughs) Because they're like, you know what, we're life partners, but this is, we're, we're not married, we're not, you know, in that kind of relationship, but we need new language and vocabulary to be able to name the variety of relationships that we need to sustain us. And that relying on the nuclear family, and I always say nuclear, tick, tick, like it's a bomb. <laughs> it's like, we need to move beyond that limited idea of how we organize ourselves socially, because it, it, can't sustain all the needs that we have as individuals. We need a much greater plethora. And also, if you go back to the data, okay, I'm going to be a super nerd for a second. Go for it. If you go back to the data, marriage doesn't seem to work for a lot of folks. Across class, across gender, across race, marriage does not seem to work. The institution of marriage does not seem to work. We're asking it to do too much. (laughs) We're asking it to do too much. It's you know, not a great corollary, but similarly, my critique of policing is like, we put on the shoulders of police, all of these other needs in terms of mental health and housing insecurity, and all of these things we're asking this one institution to do, which it's not created to undertake. And we wonder why, oh, why, why are we having all of this violence and these problems? It's like, we we need to rethink the function of these, whether marriage or policing, et cetera. And that's where imagination comes in, right? Yes. And if you're a generation that's grown up on science fiction and fantasy, right? Like, shouldn't you have this sort of capacity, right, to ask questions? And I'm smiling thinking about it because the possibility really is, yes, there is a lot of hard work that needs to be done and there's some heavy lifting that needs to be done. But anyone can sit down and think something through and maybe come up with something. And then the question is, where do you go from it? But I feel like a lot of people are sort of stymied a little bit and not even in a place where they think they can sit down and be like, huh, I noticed this thing. This thing doesn't work. I think part of it is that the, all of the sci-fi and speculation, it's like ghettoized in the realm of fantasy and in escapism. Like we don't think, oh, we can actually apply that. (laughs) to policy, to infrastructure, to social organization, like taking that capacity to see and ask, what if, what if we did X, Y, and Z? That is a starting point for fiction and a starting point for 
you know, these other worlds, let's apply it to our world. <laughs> let's not accept <laughs> what we have. I'm going to quote you again for a second. <laughs> I have so many great lines from this book. Sort of towards the end of things, you say, a critical approach to imagination also requires us to consider that the way forward is never guaranteed to be better than the present. So we do have to be a little patient. I'm not great with patience. I will, I will totally own that. I am not the most patient person in the world, but I do feel like it's something I could learn. Like you quote, there's an activist, and I'm sorry, I'm blanking on her name, but hope is a discipline. Yes, is the line Miriam you use. Yes, Miriam Kaba. Okay, thank you. And that's such a great line, right? Like hope is not like a squishy, warm, stuffed animal. Right. Hope is actually like hope and love are hard. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, they are. But the idea that we have to get through to the other side and that it may not, like, it may be messy and uncomfortable for a while, like, that's something. Absolutely. And when we are primed to kind of rush forward, we often skip over important things. And so part Mm -hmm. of this, that sort of like urgency can backfire because then we're racing so, you know, fast to whatever the next thing is, then we can surprise, oh, wait, this thing, new thing that we created actually looks a lot like the old thing because we haven't taken time to really think through all aspects of it. And so we can think about that in so many, in terms of tech advances that we see. Right. Well, I mean, I'm just going to drag out the metaphor for a second, but, you know, tech is buggy, right? Like (laughs) it takes a couple of different iterations. You know, early on, I learned the hard way, like maybe the updates didn't need to happen right away because maybe you should just like yeah. let it sort itself out first and not have a surprise when you, you know, reboot your phone and you're like, huh, I'm yes. not entirely but, sure. But then again, I never thought I'd be walking around with a supercomputer in my pocket. I mean, I was perfectly happy with a BlackBerry typing away and it just did exactly. And then my BlackBerry died in my hand. And I was just like, what happened here? And now, I mean, I can, I mean, I'm not saying I could fly a space shuttle off my phone, but it's wild to me that I walk around yes. with a supercomputer in my pocket. Like, yes. it's just what in the world yeah. does all of this mean? I mean, ultimately, I know you're optimistic and I know you understand that there's a lot of work to be done. But what's next for you? I mean, you're the founding director of the Ida B. Wells Justice Data Lab at Princeton. Not a small thing. You sit on multiple boards and committees at the university and without, plus your teaching yeah, and you're writing books. So how does this all come together yeah. for you going forward? I think, well, up until now, it's been possible because of the cross currents between what I'm teaching, what I'm writing, what I'm talking about in terms of public speaking. And so it, they inform each other and help me. And so much of my writing is like, how I teach. So if I'm yeah. jumping around to different examples, it's because I'm trying to keep my students' attention. So I know reading can be a bit abrupt, like, wait, why did she go from this to Actually, this? no, 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 no. no. I, I, and again, I've read the book twice, and I'm not saying this just because yeah. you and I are sharing a screen right now. On uh, Zoom. No, I really quite liked the pace, and I really quite liked pivoting as you did. It did not feel abrupt to me. It felt like you were pulling from all of these different pieces. Yeah. And again, I'm not really a sci-fi person, but of course I know who Octavia Butler is. And yeah. have I read a, I've read a couple of the books. You know, Black Mirror, a couple of episodes, sure. Star Trek, I'm missing entire, you know, pieces of canon. But I understand the references. And that's the thing that matters to me, that there is yeah. an opening for anyone, I think, coming to this book, that you don't have to be 
an academic and you don't have to be an activist. You don't, you can just be a reader who says, huh, this is a really interesting idea. I want to see where it goes. I love that because I mean, partly what I'm fighting against is Mm -hmm. the narrowing of who gets to even think and talk and imagine these things like that. It's this small sliver of humanity. So my writing is always trying to open that up and to say, you can start here, you can start now. And so the references to pop culture, to media, is part of my sort of pedagogical approach of saying, come on into this conversation. You don't have to have all these prerequisites to be able to do that. And to your question about what next, I'm thinking about this relationship between technology and ecology. So if, as I or the labor behind the tech, now I'm thinking about the planetary costs, the environmental dimensions of what it takes to have that supercomputer in our pockets in terms of the minerals, in terms of the energy cost. And so as much as I can, I'm trying to pull back the screen so that we can actually see demystify (laughs) these tools and question whether or not the cost of it is worth it. It's something I think about a lot. And I know certainly generations coming up behind us, like your students' generation, your son's generation, I, I don't, see how these kids can go through the day without thinking about it, right? Fortunately, I feel like they're more attuned. They're like, we're ruining for them. (laughs) They're like, get out of the way so that we can make better choices in terms of the ecology, in terms of society. I I think they might have a point in some cases. I mean, I think there's a little bit of cultural exchange that can happen between generations. I'm, I'm not ready to throw in the towel entirely, but I do think that we need to open the lines of communication in a way and not just say, well, that's adorable. You're 12. The way people bring their own experience to reading a book, of course, they do that with conversation. Of course, they do that with someone they've just met. And I would hope that we could all get to a point where maybe, you know, we figure out how to listen a little better. (laughs) Because I think if we don't do that, we're really just going to end up smacking our faces into a wall. Instead of just figuring out how to move forward, we're all just going to be, you know, completely pie-eyed. And that's that's not helpful. Like we have so much emphasis on public speaking, but not public listening. Like that is a skill that we need to actually take seriously, a muscle we need to build. I just want people to take imagination seriously as a site of struggle. And in the book, I leave you in terms of the last chapter with a set of tools and prompts and questions that can help you individually, but especially in a group setting to develop that capacity and muscle, not only to make things more fun and playful and creative, that is important, but also because we are living inside of the deadly imagination of a small set of the human population. And so to push back against that, we all have to, you know, again, understand the stakes and then build that capacity together so that we can create something different. I think we can do this. It's going to be messy. It's going to be hard. It's not going to be overnight, but I, I am going to stick on the side of optimism and I'm going to work on my hopeful muscle (laughs) and, you know, just give people time and space to read imagination and manifesto ruha benjamin thank you so much for joining us on poured over such an honor thank you for having me 
Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.